to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, December 13th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. COP28 climate talks face a standoff over fossil fuels. Harvard's president keeps her job following an anti-Semitism row. Zelensky visits the White House. The Supreme Court is asked to rule on whether Trump can be prosecuted. A new poll suggests Trump would lead Biden in the popular vote. Three Japanese ex-soldiers are found guilty of sexual assault. A whistleblower claims China had access to Tesla employees' data. The UN officially ends its peacekeeping mission in Mali. U.S. Republicans delay a vote on extending controversial surveillance powers. And Sports Illustrated's publisher fires its CEO following an AI scandal. In our first story, COP28 goes into overtime as nations debate the fossil fuel phase-out. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, Associated Press, MSN, and CNBC. The UN-led COP28 climate summit has gone into overtime as countries continue to talk about how to handle the future of fossil fuels. Global leaders are split over the wording of a draft text release Monday that failed to call for the complete phase-out of oil, gas, and coal. The Global Summit's draft resolution on fossil fuels was highly anticipated, and various climate activists were angered by Monday's publication that dropped previous references phasing out of petroleum-based sources. While more than 100 countries support some form of phase-out, The draft stopped short of calling for such measures. The two-week-long conference was hosted in Dubai and was slated to end on Tuesday, but organizers extended talks into Tuesday evening to negotiate a resolution. Despite attempts at diplomacy and extended conversations, workers were seen dismantling signs. The U.S. and EU member states are among the nations calling for the phase-out of fossil fuels, while members of the OPEC oil producer group have called for a more measured approach to the issue. COP28 Director General Mihad al-Suwaidi of the UAE said Monday's resolution was intended to draw negotiators from nearly 200 countries to reveal their demands and advance the discussion. Private talks are still being held, and U.S. envoy John Kerry says he believes a new draft with stronger language will be published on Wednesday. Reporters expect that new draft agreement to be the last, and all 198 countries must agree on the text for it to become an official pact between nations. COP28 President Sultan al-Jaber came under fire for comments questioning the scientific validity of phasing out fossil fuels. However, he walked back the comments and said that he is committed to keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above baseline. Many climate scientists say fossil fuels are the largest contributor to global warming and must be eliminated. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa laid out the facts for us, and now our first narrative spin is Narrative A from Recharge. Monday's COP28 draft text is not a sufficient resolution to guide climate policy and any international agreement that wants to seriously tackle global warming must call for the total phase-out of oil, gas, and coal. The scientific consensus is clear, and net-zero emissions by 2050 are the only way to avoid a global climate catastrophe. While such policies may harm the economies of oil-rich nations, the overall health of our planet takes precedence over economic concerns. 
UN leaders must come together with a strongly worded draft that provides clarity on how to eliminate fossil fuels and protect the planet. Narrative B comes from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Climate activists are becoming dangerously close to climate extremists who fervently push for dangerous measures that could do more harm than good. While many people can agree that climate change is a serious issue and that fossil fuels contribute to the global warming of Earth, it does not mean that we should resort to extreme policies that could destroy our modern way of life and collapse the energy sector of nations. Protecting the planet is very important, and there are reasonable measures that can produce a sustainable future. But shouting for an all-or-nothing approach to fossil fuels is unproductive. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 43% chance that large-scale solar radiation management will be used to mitigate the effects of climate change in the 21st century. I was reading something earlier today about Ozempic, that like the latest like hmm. hunger management drug right, that people are getting like skinny a, with. Right. Makes your face look old, but drops a bunch yeah. of weight. Yeah. So apparently there's like this big crisis now in the in the economy because the snack industry is selling way less unhealthy snacks. Mm. And apparently some huge percentage of the American economy is based on the selling of unhealthy snacks. So like Ozempic oh, no. is, is like jeopardizing the economy. So- Everyone's healthy, but the economy collapses. Right. So what have we done? So at some point, like I I understand the claims from some of these oil producing countries that this is going to hurt them. But, you know, it's kind of like when you're trying to clean out your basement of clutter and someone keeps saying like, oh, you should really hang on to that. Well, you might need those uh, those those uh, pipe cleaners. Oh, you might need that. And you're trying to throw stuff out, but like right. they're not—they're not helping. Keep those um, old uh, batteries with no juice left in. Right, them. you never know. They should recycle those, really. Yeah, you but can't I don't know put how. them in the garbage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it feels like that's what these oil-producing countries are saying. They're like, we're trying to get off this oil, but you keep saying why we shouldn't, and they may even be good reasons, but we're trying to get off this thing. Okay, so um, what we need to do, Scott, you and I, sure. is tell the leaders of the OPEC Plus uh, group that. Uh, we need to find the acai bowl of the oil industry. Right. Because right. you can charge way more for an acai bowl than a bag of Doritos. Right. Or, I was, or go the other way and get these oil producing countries hooked on snack foods. And then Ooh. that replaces their, their economy right there. So then they're Scott you Wallace, that. You're, you're a damn genius. <laughs> Two birds, it. one stone. <laughs> Did you know that Doritos uh, can be used as Tinder? If you need a fire, and you don't have any tinder, you can just like, you know, put some Doritos on your wood and that will light it up for you. Well, I always bring Doritos camping, so that's good to know. (laughs) That's right. I am serious. I do always bring Doritos camping. Good. Harvard's board says their president won't lose their job over their Congress appearance. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Harvard Crimson, the Associated Press, Harvard University's official website, NPR Online News, Forbes, and BBC News. Harvard University's 13-member school board has announced its continued support for President Claudine Gay following comments made during a congressional appearance last week that focused on allegations of recent and rising anti-Semitism on college campuses. The Harvard Corporation claimed that Gay remained the right leader to help our community heal, claiming that the university president had apologized for how she handled her congressional testimony, and was committed to redoubling efforts against anti-Semitism. During a December 5th hearing held by the House Committee on Education, 
Gay stated that the calling for a, quote, genocide of Jews depended on the context for violating Harvard's bullying and harassment policies. Gay further specified that behavior that crosses into bullying, harassment, and intimidation led to actionable conduct by the university. A day later, Harvard released a statement from Gay on social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter, clarifying that rhetoric about violence or genocide against Jewish communities or any group was vile, had no place at the university, and would be treated as a serious incident. Over 700 Harvard faculty members consequently signed a letter to the Harvard Corporation on December 10th asking for the board to resist political pressures at odds with Harvard's commitment to academic freedom, claiming Gay's continuation in the role was critical to defending a culture of free inquiry. The news comes as the now former president of the University of Pennsylvania, Liz McGill, resigned for her own comments on the subject during the same committee hearing alongside the chairman of the university's school board of trustees, Scott Bach. Thank you, Scott. We'll start with a narrative A from the New York Post. Harvard's defense of Gay's disgraceful comments is hypocritical, considering the university's struggles with allowing free speech that it disagrees with on campus. While it's possible that Gay does wish to push back on anti-Semitism now that the issue has been raised, It seems more likely that any promises of protecting its Jewish community are a cynical move that doesn't address the oppressive ideologies that are pervasive in American college campuses. Harvard has deep work to do to protect the Jewish community and reject the knee-jerk cancellation of free speech. Narrative B comes from the Harvard Crimson. While anti-Semitism, like many other forms of hate, is a problem within Harvard and America that must be solved, it's disingenuous for Congress to reshape the reality of campus life at the university. Gay's comments were a specific response in relation to Harvard's codified policies concerning harassment and bullying. Harvard's diverse academics, including scholars of religion and the Middle East, backed this move. The university is dedicated to being a safe space for its entire community. And the Metaculous Prediction community has another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 51% chance that Harvard's endowment will be larger in 2119 than in 2019. Zelensky meets with Biden and top U.S. officials. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The New York Times, CNN, Voice of America, The Guardian, and The Independent. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Capitol Hill Tuesday, to make a last-ditch request for more funding for the war against Russia. While U.S. President Joe Biden has asked Congress to pass a $110.5 billion emergency aid package, including $50 billion for Ukraine, House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, told reporters after a meeting with Zelensky that a, quote, national security supplemental spending package must first include more funding for America's southern border. In the Senate, Republican leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky said that while he agrees with Democrats on funding Ukraine, we know that our border, just like Ukraine's border and Israel's and Taiwan's, must be inviolable. For his part, Zelensky did not take a side in the domestic immigration debate, instead sticking to his country's need for more funding. After leaving his meeting with Senate Republicans without talking to reporters, Zelensky then met with Biden at the White House, during which the U.S. president argued that Congress needs to pass the supplemental funds to provide more aid to Ukraine. His Ukrainian counterpart emphasized that message, adding that he also needed help strengthening his nation's air defense system. 
Yesterday, Zelensky addressed U.S. military officers at the National Defense University in Washington, during which he thanked the U.S. for its support. He noted that Ukrainian soldiers are holding position on the front and haven't let Russia score any victory this year, but added that Kyiv now has to win in the sky. Zelensky, who said a halt to U.S. aid would be dreams come true for Putin, also met with the International Monetary Fund chief, Kristalina Georgieva, hours after the global body approved $900 million for Ukraine. Elsewhere, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban is threatening to veto Ukraine's ascension to the EU, a move the Ukrainian foreign minister said would have devastating consequences. Prior to visiting the U.S., Zelensky made a stop in Argentina for the inauguration of the country's new president, Javier Millet. During the event, the Ukrainian leader was seen having an animated discussion with his Hungarian counterpart, who has also opposed letting Ukraine into NATO. Pretty political story here, so we have some right and left narrative, starting with the Republican spin from the Wall Street Journal. The American people have all but given up on Biden's domestic and foreign policy skills, which is why he must finally take the role of lead negotiator in this debate and give the GOP what it wants in exchange for Ukraine aid. As countless illegal migrants cross the border every day, Biden's approval on immigration has dropped to 33 percent. If he wishes to continue funding Ukraine, let alone win in 2024, he will have to listen to the desires of the American people, including the GOP, and demand a solution before Congress breaks for the holidays. Here's the Democratic narrative from the Los Angeles Times. While some Republicans may care about border security, that's not why the Trump loyalists in the House are blocking this bill. What they actually care about is creating governmental chaos to the point where it looks as if governmental institutions themselves don't work. This is why they almost shut down the government during the budget debate and will likely do it again next month. The GOP wants to erode every norm of American politics, and not only is America paying the price, but shamefully, Ukraine is as well. We've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 50% chance that Ukraine will have a democracy index of at least 5.64 by 2024. The Supreme Court is asked to rule on whether Trump can be prosecuted. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Associated Press, CNN, and the Supreme Court's official website. Special Counsel Jack Smith has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review whether former President Donald Trump can be prosecuted for crimes allegedly committed during his tenure in public office. On Monday, Smith filed a six-page writ of certiorari before judgment petition to the country's top court, requesting an expedited review of a lower court's ruling. The special counsel continued that the motion contained an issue of exceptional national importance. On December 1st, U.S. District Judge Tanya S. Chupkin rejected the former president's claim of immunity from charges accusing him of attempting to overturn the 2020 presidential election, concluding that the position of former president does not ensure special conditions on federal criminal liability. While Trump's team had filed a notice of appeal, Smith's motion argues that only the Supreme Court can provide the definitive and final resolution to Trump's immunity claims. Smith further cited the case of United States v. Nixon 1974 as a precedent of the court granting certiori concerning presidential claims of executive privilege. That bring the exchange and filing of opening briefs 14 days after the certiori's acceptance, 
response briefs within seven days after, and oral arguments as soon as practicable. Later on Monday, the Supreme Court granted consideration of the petition, while asking for a legal response from Trump's team by December 20th. Thank you, Scott. Here's an anti-Trump narrative from MSNBC. The request attempts to keep the American legal system schedule on track by bypassing the appellate process being used by Trump to delay his legal reckoning. Although an unusual procedure, there is precedent in Nixon's criminal trial. With creativity, Smith has undermined Trump's attempts to grind the American judicial system to a halt. And the pro-Trump narrative from The Last Refuge. Smith's attempt to rush a decision exposes a desire to bury the former president by the spring of next year. With Super Tuesday set to occur a day after the start of Trump's March trial, it's no coincidence that the legal queries are being fast-tracked to undermine Trump's political campaign. And the nerds are at it again from Metaculus saying there's a 56% chance of Trump being jailed or incarcerated before 2030. A new poll suggests that Trump leads in the popular vote and trails in key battleground states. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, Fox News, Reuters, Forbes, CNN, and The Messenger. The latest Reuters-Ipsos poll released on Tuesday found that former President Donald Trump has a two-point popular vote advantage over incumbent Joe Biden, 38 to 36 percent, in a hypothetical 2024 head-to-head rematch at the ballot box. This lead would be widened to five points in the event of a third-party candidacy by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., according to the survey, as the independent presidential hopeful would drop Trump and Biden's vote shares to 36 percent and 31 percent, respectively. Conducted online from December 5th to 11th, with 4,411 U.S. adults nationwide, the poll showed a lack of enthusiasm among Americans at a potential Biden-Trump contest. About 60% of the respondents expressed dissatisfaction with the two-party system and wanted a third option. Yet the results also offer hope for Biden, as the Republican frontrunner trails him by four points among likely voters in the seven most closely fought states in 2020. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. If Trump secures the GOP nomination as expected, he would need to win over three states he lost in the past presidential election to retake the White House. While he could pick up 31 electoral votes with the swing of a few hundred thousand voters in Georgia and Michigan, he would still need a further seven to reach 270. Reuters Ipsos also found that roughly one-third of Republican voters wouldn't vote for Trump if a jury convicts him of a felony before November 5, 2024. He currently faces four criminal trials related to his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election and mishandling of classified documents. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-Trump narrative from Washington Examiner. Biden is on a rapid decline while Trump is on the upswing. This poll, like a sea of others, shows Democrats still don't understand their voters' desires, let alone the resurging significance of Trump's base. And Democrats should be even more concerned if a third-party candidate stays in the race until the end. Here's the anti-Trump narrative from the New York Times. Although it's scary to imagine Trump's return to the White House, these recent surveys, almost a year out from the election, don't reflect a resounding Trump win, and their predictions are easily avoided. Biden may take a hit if certain non-white younger voters decide not to vote, but all he has to do is motivate the traditional Democratic base and his second term will be safe. 
Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative predicting a 46% chance that Trump would win a 2024 presidential election matchup with Biden. So there are certain canaries in the coal mine, and I knew one day I was on an airplane and I was sitting behind two rows behind a man that appeared to just have Trump's exact haircut. Mm. And when I got out of the plane, I was like, geez, what's this guy look like? It was just an Asian man, unironically, with Trump's exact haircut. Interesting. And that this was in like 2015 or something, sometime during the primaries. Mm. And that was, I knew at that point, like, he's got this. Like and where, if, were, if this, where were you coming from? I, I can't really see at that point. I would have been flying to or from Seattle. I don't remember. But okay. I can tell you there was <laughs> just curious. a unironically an Asian man just had couldn't have been more Trump's exact, exact haircut, which mm. isn't the most natural haircut for any person of any race, color or creed. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, there, not for a, this guy, especially. That's an intentional haircut. Yes. And he wasn't having a laugh. He was just this is just what was in my hair. You know, like right. no big deal. I knew that like, oh, Trump's there's something real here where there's smoke, yeah. there's fire, where there's an Asian man. With a Trump haircut, there's fire. Mm. Like, you know. Yeah. That's right. And disturbing news from Japan as three ex-soldiers are found guilty of sexual assault. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Military.com, Reuters, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, and BBC News. On Tuesday, a Japanese court convicted three former soldiers of sexually assaulting a female colleague. Authorities had initially dismissed the case until the victim demanded it be reopened. Rina Ganoi, a former member of Japan's self-defense forces, reported that in 2021, three of her male colleagues forcibly simulated sexual acts on her. Shitaro Shibuya, Akito Sakin, and Yusuke Kimzawa had pleaded not guilty to sexual assault. However, they admitted to pushing Ganoi onto a bed at a party at an army training facility in August of that year. The Fukushima District Court sentenced the three men to two years in prison. The sentences, however, were suspended for four years, meaning that the men won't actually serve any time. Ganoi said that she complained to her supervisors following the incident but decided to leave the military last year. She drew national and international attention when she shared her experience on YouTube in 2022, leading to a petition signed by over 100,000 people that saw the Ministry of Defense apologize for the assault and dismiss five of the men involved. This ruling comes after Japan implemented changes to its sex crime laws in June, including increasing the age of consent and reclassifying the legal definition of rape. Thank you, Scott. We'll start with a narrative A from Amnesty International. This landmark verdict takes a strong stance against sexual violence in Japan and is the first step in proving that the nation's recent amendments to its sexual crime laws is making concrete progress. This is a win, not only for Ganoi, but for all victims of sexual violence. These efforts should be celebrated. And The Guardian brings us narrative B. This verdict is a good start, but much more needs to be done to promote gender equality in Japan and to lift the taboo around speaking out about sexual violence. Ganoi should have been taken seriously from the beginning, and the misconduct of the soldiers involved should never have been considered acceptable. The culture itself is what needs an overhaul. A whistleblower says that China may have accessed Tesla employees' data. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, Tesla Rati, and Seeking Alpha. 
A former Tesla employee, Lucas Krupski, has claimed that Chinese Tesla staff gained access to the data of more than 100,000 employees at the company. Writing to the UK's Information Commissioner's Office, or ICO, he said the data accessed could be very useful for Russian or Chinese intelligence. Krupski, who first joined the electric vehicle manufacturing company in 2018, told the office that the data came from Tesla's project tracking software called Jira. It included passport numbers, medical details, and salaries of current and former Tesla employees across the world, among other things. While Tesla employed more than 127,000 people last year, the database included a significant number of former employees, including thousands of files on why they left the company. Tesla has said that anyone with a valid Tesla email address could access the system, prompting German journalists earlier this year to suggest that Chinese Tesla employees also had access. A self-described EV enthusiast and Tesla believer has previously disclosed customer complaints surrounding Tesla's driver assist systems, dubbed by the media as the Tesla Files, and has been interviewed by the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and Securities and Exchange Commission. While national security laws in China allow the government to demand data from businesses operating in the country, Authorities in the Netherlands, Tesla's European headquarters, are probing the company's broader data practices. Former and current employees have also filed three lawsuits against Tesla in the U.S. over data breaches, the company over the summer telling staff that it's committed to protecting data. This comes as Tesla's sales in China fell about 17.8% year-over-year in November, though they did rise by roughly 14.3% month-over-month in October. Its sales also grew at a much slower pace, 1% year-over-year in October, compared to China's EV passenger vehicle market, growing 30.1%. All right, Melissa, Narrative A comes from The Guardian. Tesla has exposed both employee and customer data on a global scale, which is why governments across the West are scrambling to probe the source of these breaches and develop security measures to prevent future scandals of this kind. While Tesla claims a disgruntled former employee is behind the bad press, other employees have come forward with similar findings. More than 100,000 files of personal information are vulnerable to international bad actors due to Tesla's failed security systems, which could jeopardize U.S. security and give the PRC an advantage. Here's Narrative B from The Diplomat. While steps toward better data protection should certainly be taken, it's important to understand the positive diplomatic outcomes of Tesla's business dealings in China. In the words of Elon Musk, the U.S. and China are codependent superpowers who, without economic ties, could very well end up on opposing sides of the battlefield. In a similar fashion to sporting events, individual Western-based companies offering olive branches to China could help cool tensions as the economic world order begins to shift. The big picture shows Tesla being a boon to warming U.S. PRC relations in general. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 15% chance that Tesla will become the largest car company in the world by sales before 2035. That's tricky, having a, a, you know, like being a big corporation and having a headquarter in China, in, in a country with a different system of government than you. That's got to be hard to navigate. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure financially it's hard to navigate. And then the rules, the laws. I mean, basically you have to follow a bunch of different laws all at the same time, I imagine, which 
Right. Probably not easy. And then they're not always compatible is what we're seeing here. Yes. The UN officially ends its Mali peacekeeping mission after 10 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Seychelles News Agency, Fox News, The Times of India, Africa News, and France 24. The UN stabilization mission in Mali, MINUSMA, took down the UN flag at its headquarters in Bamako on Monday, officially ending its 10-year mission in the country, according to its spokesperson. The move was requested by Mali's military government earlier this year. MINUSMA chief El Ghassim Wan announced at the symbolic ceremony that the withdrawal date of January 1st would be followed by a liquidation phase, including the handover of remaining equipment to the authorities. He also voiced satisfaction with what the mission could reasonably achieve in the crisis-ridden country. Mamadou Guy, the commander of the 13,000-strong force, described MINUSMA as a very positive mission, despite the vast and difficult terrain in Mali. The withdrawal of UN troops comes after former colonial power France ended its military mission in the country last year at Bamako's request. MINUSMA recently handed over one of the last bases in Mopti in the country's center, a hot spot of jihadist violence, to Malian authorities. So far, the UN mission abandoned 13 locations in Mali and still has to leave locations in Gao and Timbuktu in northern Mali before the withdrawal deadline expires. In June, the current Malian government, which came to power in a military coup in 2020 and turned to Russia as a new strategic partner, called for the immediate withdrawal of MINUSMA from the UN Security Council, arguing that the mission was a failure and part of the problem. Launched in 2013, MINUSMA is known as the UN peacekeeping mission with the most casualties incurred for its staff, with more than 300 personnel killed. Mali's struggle to contain an Islamic extremist insurgency prompted a French-led military operation in 2012. While initially successful, the insurgents were able to reorganize and begin attacking the Malian forces and their allies. Those were the facts, and this round of spin starts with a pro-establishment narrative from the National Post. The Malian junta's claim that MINUSMA was a failure is false, as its mandate was not to recapture territory lost to the Islamists, but to strengthen the Malian army's capabilities in the fight against the extremists. Moreover, the UN Stabilization Mission acted as a mediator between some rebel groups and the military junta in Bamako to lay the foundations for lasting peace. MINUSMA has been a success, and the military government in Bamako, kicking France and the UN out of the country, is irresponsible. Mali is not yet in a position to ensure the country's security on its own. And the establishment critical narrative from RT. While the UN is claiming its 10-year presence to be a success, Mali's security situation has continued to deteriorate. Remarkably, it was only after MINUSMA pulled out of one of its bases in the north that the Malian government was able to achieve a major strategic victory against separatist rebels. That this was achieved with the support of Russia's Wagner Group is further proof that Bamako's move to seek new allies was right. The fact that MINUSMA is following France's example and has officially ended its Mali mission will help restore Mali's stability. Here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 61% chance that Mali will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040. U.S. Republicans delay a vote on extending controversial surveillance powers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill. 
Electronic Frontier Foundation, The New York Times, and The Washington Examiner. With Congress facing a long to-do list before it breaks for winter recess on Friday, including a visit from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and efforts to strike a deal on military aid for Ukraine, among its priorities was to pass a bill extending and reforming the ability of U.S. intelligence agencies to conduct warrantless surveillance on non-citizens abroad. In seeking reforms to Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, House Republicans tabled two competing bills, one drafted by the House Judiciary Committee to ban warrantless backdoor searches of Americans' communications and law enforcement from buying data that usually needs a warrant, and the other by the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. The HPSCI bill would reauthorize FISA for another eight years and create new authorities that the intelligence community has sought for years, but has been denied by courts. Republicans had intended to use a procedural rule called Queen of the Hill, an approach where the bill with the most votes gets sent to the Senate for consideration. Supporters of the judiciary bill, including progressive Democrats and right-wing Republicans, argue that it curtails FISA's sweeping surveillance authorization to protect Americans whose communications get swept up when abroad. Detractors of the bill, however, including supporters of its alternative, argue that it makes the country vulnerable to spies, hackers, and terrorists. Meanwhile, critics of the Intelligence Committee bill, including supporters of the alternative, but also civil society groups such as the Brennan Center, described it as a wolf in sheep's clothing. They said that not only would it fail to rein in warrantless surveillance, but it would also expand the U.S. government's ability to spy on its citizens while abroad. Those differences came to a head on Monday when House Republicans, who have the majority, failed to agree on an alternative with some criticizing the Queen of the Hill approach adopted by Speaker Mike Johnson. While the broader discussion has now been delayed until next year, some have proposed a short-term extension of FISA under its current rules until April 19, 2024, though this has also been criticized. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Messenger. In a world gripped by violence and with the U.S. facing more threats than ever before, from Iran-backed terrorists to the Chinese government, Section 702 of FISA allows the U.S. government to collect critical intelligence on foreigners abroad to protect the nation. While the Intelligence Committee bill would make much-needed reforms, it would keep America's core intelligence capabilities alive. Meanwhile, its alternative degrades U.S. intelligence capabilities and puts Americans at greater risk. The Brennan Center for Justice brings us an establishment critical narrative. Under FISA's current rules, the CIA, NSA, and other intel agencies have spied on over 200,000 Americans without warrants in the last year alone. That figure included a number of egregious violations, such as spying on domestic campaigners, journalists, and even members of Congress. A committee bill would make the necessary reforms to rein in the unconstitutional parts of FISA. Its alternative, the Intelligence Committee bill, plans to expand FISA's scope, only leading to more violations. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 78% chance that another 9-11 on U.S. soil will be prevented at least through 2030. Our final story, the publisher of Sports Illustrated fires their CEO after an AI scandal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NBC, The Guardian, CBS, BBC News and fortune. The Arena Group, publisher of Sports Illustrated, 
ousted CEO Ross Levinson on Monday, weeks after a reported weeks after a report exposed the company for publishing articles written by fake authors with AI-generated headshots and biographies. The Arena Group did not provide details as to why Levinson was terminated, but said in a statement that its board took actions to improve the operational efficiency and revenue of the company. Manoj Bhargava, the founder and CEO of Innovations Ventures, which makes the drink five-hour energy, was named as the company's interim CEO. Sports Illustrated came under fire after science and technology news outlet Futurism released an investigative report last month that uncovered the publication creating fake profiles of AI-generated editors and authors. The Arena Group denies the allegations and says the articles in question were sourced from a third-party advertising firm called Advon Commerce. All alleged AI-generated stories have been removed from SI.com, and the Arena Group is conducting an internal investigation of the situation. In an X post, an Arena Group spokesperson said, Advon has assured us that all of the articles in question were written and edited by humans. A spokesperson for interim CEO Bargava said that Levinson's removal had absolutely nothing to do with the AI issue at all, and the company's statement did not mention the scandal. However, the issue brought attention to an emerging issue of news outlets cutting human staff and relying on artificial intelligence to cut costs. Last week, the Arena Group fired three high-profile executives, Operations President and COO Andrew Kraft, Media President Rob Barrett, and Corporate Counsel Julie Fenster. Levinson joined the company in 2020 after serving as a top executive at Yahoo, Tribune Publishing, and Fox Interactive. He announced his removal in a LinkedIn post. Thank you, Scott. Boston.com gives us the first narrative. Sports Illustrated was once the gold standard for sports journalism, and it still employs some of the world's best writers of the actual human variety. However, this scandal of using artificial intelligence to create stories written by fake people is an utter disgrace to journalism and a slap in the face to illustrious and seasoned writers. Not only does AI produce inferior work, but it also casts a division between an outlet and its readers. Consumers are skeptical of AI for a reason, and the journalism industry should not replace talented writers with AI-generated avatars. And the Wyoming Tribune Eagle brings us Narrative B. While public backlash is focused on Sports Illustrated for using AI-generated authors to write stories, the larger focus should be on the entire industry of journalism. The fact is that journalism has undergone serious transformations throughout history, especially since the digital age. Change comes rapidly. We are now in the age of artificial intelligence. While it may be a sad development for some, the use of AI authors is a natural progression as technology advances and Sports Illustrated shouldn't be singled out for this broad trend of changing times. And the nerds have the final word from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 95% chance that AI will be able to read a novel and reliably answer questions about it before 2030. I'm looking forward to the AI-generated swimsuit issue. That will be, I'm in for that. (laughs) Let's see what happens there. Will you be upset if it turns out they're fake people? I don't, I, if you ever had a conversation with one of these gals, I don't think I think you <laughs> different kind of thing. I think you'd yeah, rather yeah. have an, a conversation with ChatGPT. Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, December thirteenth, twenty twenty-three. Each day, we use machine learning to read about five thousand articles from about one hundred newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. 
For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.